I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season nine of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone. In this week's episode, you are going to hear from a man who holds not one, but two Guinness World Records in tennis and is now an author. He is also a USPTA elite professional tennis coach. Angelo Rossetti has a phenomenal story that he's sharing with us. And not only will you hear about how he set his two Guinness World Records, but you'll also hear the inspiration behind his new book, Tenacity, The Tenacious Mindset on and off the court. So without further ado, I bring you Angelo Rossetti. Enjoy. Hi, this is Matt Manassi, and you're listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. Angelo Rossetti, thanks so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. Yes, thank you, Lisa, for having me. Absolutely. I'm just thrilled to hear more about your new book and to hear more about you and how you got started with tennis. I know you have a very interesting story. I've done a little bit of research on your background, but why don't you share your kind of intro to tennis with our audience? Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, it's a it's a roundabout way to be where I am and and I've couldn't couldn't have done it with a lot of, uh, without a lot of especially from my identical twin brother, uh, Etere. And so I guess I'll start there is that uh, when we were growing up, uh, we used to go to my grandparents' house every Sunday afternoon after church. And one of the things I remembered was that he had a table tennis or, or otherwise known as ping pong table in the basement. And he was uh, a carpenter by by trade and a farmer and he he actually built the ceiling of the Yale gym and some houses and uh he built a table tennis table in the basement and we were three years old at the time and so we weren't tall enough to play on it but we wanted to play apparently so he cut the legs of the table uh, to make the table low enough and stood us on milk crates. And that was, you know, my first introduction to, to tennis, I would say, because I played it like tennis. I, I held the paddle like a tennis racket with, you know, a, a forehand and a backhand using both sides of the paddle. Um, and we used to compete for hours at a time. I remember just from three years old till... Um, probably, you know, young teenagers. Uh, and we just loved it. We loved running downstairs and playing. And I remember playing against my uncle and my grandfather and my mother. And it was, it was so much fun. Um, and I played a lot of sports with my brother. I, you know, it's just my brother and I and our family as far as children. But I always had someone to play with. And I think that is so important, especially, you know, now being uh, a father of two children, Maddie, who's uh, 13, and Andy, who's eight, 
I can relate to the fact that it's great for them to have a sibling or friends or coach or someone to practice with. That's so important because the wall can only do so much. And um, so I used to also love watching it on television. My mother in particular, my father watched it as well, but my mother was uh, really interested in the sport. And I remember her watching Wimbledon, watching Borg play against McEnroe. And that was probably one of the first tennis matches that was televised that I remember. Um, and I just uh, remember really enjoying it. And really, I considered myself a tennis fan. My brother and I never played until we were about 15 years old, but we watched it on TV constantly. And then our uh, best friend, Rob, you know, was a very good player. He was naturally gifted tennis player and he was number one in every junior age group that I can remember in New England. And we used to travel and, you know, watch and cheer him on playing tennis, you know, all the while, you know, really, I guess, psychologically and mentally having that footprint of how to hit the ball properly by watching all of these really good players on TV and in in person. And then, um, you know, then one day, you know, he encouraged us to try out for the high school team and, you know, we were juniors at the time and I knew that was pretty late because we'd missed the first two years. And, you know, um, you know, we said, why not? You know, and he said, you're, you're athletic, you know, um, you guys should try out for the team. And so we, at that point had a goal and we had someone that was really good in tennis, believe in us. So we set out to play tennis. I remember, you know, every day, uh, in the summer, as long as we could. And, um, I remember when it used to get dark out, um, the lights at our public courts closed at about 11 PM. And then we used to drive about 35 minutes to, um, a nearby town and those lights closed at about two or 3 AM. So I remember us playing until the light shut off. In the oh my gosh. When you were teenagers. Uh, yeah. Um, wow. so I, I thought, I think that's pretty unusual. Although my brother and I had such a good time and, and we always had this thing where we wanted to end on a winner and you had to hit a clean winner and then we could leave. Like if we, if we didn't play until the light shut out, we said, well, let's end on a winner and it would be like 1am or something. And wow. I remember it would take like 20 minutes because you know, you're diving for the ball. No, I touched it. It's not a clean winner. <laughs> Other point. Um, so it was, it was really, uh, you know, really fun. And it, and it, ha- it was also a vehicle for me to spend a lot of quality time with my twin brother. We, of course, were very close. Uh, identical twins have certainly a special bond. I think identical twins are, are really best friends. And whereas siblings and fraternal twins could be best friends or sometimes not always or sometimes it takes a while. But right. I think with identical twins, you you share similar interests and you are almost best friends right away. So then... You know, fast forward um, to to college, and uh, my mother was an English teacher. Uh, my father was a machinist, and so my mother always stressed 
uh, education over everything else. And so although my brother and I played a lot of sports and, and for the parents out there, I, I really do believe that multi-sport athletes are the best athletes. And, and then when they do decide to specialize, which at some point I think you do need to d- decide to specialize, but that doesn't need to come until you're, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, right around there. It doesn't have to happen earlier than that. But if you specialize, then really you have a lot of the other skills that are are gifted by other sports, hand-eye coordination from tennis and lacrosse and table tennis and movement skills like, you know, from soccer and basketball and 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 really basketball, the, the the jump stop is very similar to the split step in tennis, and there's a lot of overlap and correlations. And and my brother and I played basketball. We played a little bit of soccer, swimming, you know. And then when we got to UConn, we both went to University of Connecticut together. We played intramurals, every sport possible. And I remember our team winning the intramural championships, and it was really fun. But I couldn't play uh, D1 tennis the first two years because I had my chemistry labs in the afternoon. Um, UConn was my backup school. I had applied to Yale, Brown, and Cornell, and then, oh, I might as well put UConn on there in case I don't get in to the others. And sure enough, I got into my safety school. So at first I was a little disappointed, but I, you know, looking back at it now, I wouldn't uh, change anything because I really challenged myself with honors classes. I was an honor mechanical engineering major the first two years. And uh, I couldn't play tennis because of my labs in the afternoon on Tuesdays and Thursdays, three o'clock. And I remember going to the tryouts or going to some of the tennis matches and looking through the fence, thinking to myself, well, I, I think I could make this team. Um, so I played intramurals the, the first two years and they had singles and doubles and, and I won you know, both those divisions, both years. So I was still playing and I plus did the same thing for table tennis and, and badminton. It was some reason the racket sports I really enjoyed. I think it was because when I was really young at my grandfather's house in the basement, that really Mm -hmm. made a positive impression on me. But then fast forward to my junior year. And again, you know, you know, enter my best friend, Rob and you know, I remember talking to him one time before the day before classes started my junior year. And, and he said, kind of like when, you know, when you graduate from UConn, what do you want to do for a living? And I was flipping through a tennis magazine at the time and I saw a Nike ad and I said, designing ads like that. And he's like, okay, well then why don't you do that? And I said, well, well I don't know. My high school counselor, my guidance counselor said that you're good at math and science, math plus science equals engineering. And that's what I did. <laughs> uh, and my father, of course, was a machinist, which is similar right. to an engineer. So I thought I was on the right track. And so literally 24 hours later, I changed my major and all of my classes to sports science, which was in the School of Education with a concentration in sports marketing. And what I didn't realize was now I didn't have labs in the afternoon that can actually try out for the tennis team. And as we got closer to tryouts, I remember talking to a good friend of mine, Jerome, who, who dormed at Wade in Towers in at UConn. And I said, if you thought that you had the ability to make a D1 sports team, would you as a walk-on junior? And he's like, absolutely. So I said, okay. So I tried out as a 
a walk on and my brother did too. And, uh, I remember, you know, basically being a line of players that you had to play. Uh, I wasn't recruited. No one knew who I was and I was homegrown. So I lived in Connecticut and I was going to the university of Connecticut. And I think it's harder to make a team in your own state because they recruit out of state heavily and also international players. So, um, I, you know, I felt like that the deck was definitely stacked a little bit against me, but that, that got me really focused and I really cared about practice. I showed up early. I, back then I had a Walkman. I was listening to music and really kind of, you know, visualizing and, and, and doing a little bit of imagery, that sort of thing. And of how I was going to play in tryouts. And so the first day went by and I played a bunch of matches for a few hours and won them all. And the coach said, you know, why don't you come back tomorrow? And, and then the same thing happened the next day. And I ended up being the benchmark for the team where the next day, some people came for tryouts on Tuesday and they really had started on Monday. And the coach said, tryouts were yesterday, but why don't you play this guy Rossetti? And if you, you know, if you can beat him, you can continue to try out. But if not, then then yeah, you you have to go home. And so I ended up beating all these players that that kept coming. It felt like you know for months, but it was only a week. <laughs> and and um, yeah, so then you know Wednesday turned came around, and basically by Friday, um, you know I I did five days of tryouts, several matches a day, and uh, I remember um, you know doing well. Um, you know, unfortunately my brother was the last person cut. Uh, he, he was playing against the person and, um, they got to a third set and tie break. Um, and then I think what happened, uh, was that then it got dark. We didn't have lights at that point at UConn. And so then I think the coaches said, why don't you come back tomorrow and finish it? And then I think they ended up just saying, you know what, we're good with the number we have. You're both cut. And so that was my brother and, and this other person. And so I was the last person to make the team. Um, and, you know, for me, it was, you know, I was disappointed that my brother didn't make the team. So we approached the coaches and said, you know, hey, um, we would love to play doubles for for our school. Can we challenge your number one doubles team? And and I, I basically said, if we win, then you take my brother. And if we lose, you can cut me, even though I made the team. And they said, no, you have to make the team singles. And so, you know, that was the end of that brilliant idea. Um, <laughs> but, but very uh, creative of the two of you. I like yeah, that. Very, yeah, I think it was creative. I, I take that. And so, um, you know, obviously we were very loyal to each other because I wouldn't have been there in that position if it wasn't for him. Um, so... So then, you know, I remember the the coach, Mike, one of the assistant coaches says, it was Friday and he says, okay, you know, why don't you come back on Monday? And then I'm like, and he starts walking away and I, you know, it reminds me of, of like a clip from the movie Rudy, you know, and I was like, wait, wait, you mean come back on Monday? You you mean, you mean like I made the team? He's like, yeah, yeah, come come back on Monday. Like, you mean I'm on the varsity team? He's like, yeah, come back on Monday, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, no way, that's incredible, you know, and I I absolutely loved being on the team. I was on the team for two and a half years. Uh, I, you know, I had to go an extra half year because I had lost some credits when I switched majors, um, but it was really an amazing two and a half years of my life and, and the whole college experience and setting, but 
the camaraderie behind the sport of tennis is just second to none when you're traveling and you're driving a bus together and um, to Hilton Head. And uh, so I remember my, my, my senior year, uh, I went on a run. I, I think I was 12 and 0 or something like that. I don't really remember, but um, I remember at Hilton Head, I was uh, um, 10 and 0. We played five matches in five days and I won all my singles and won all my doubles. And so then there was a news reporter that, that came to the tennis courts one day and, you know, said, we want to talk to this guy, Angelo. And that just doesn't happen at UConn because they're talking to the football players or the basketball team. Right. But to talk to a tennis athlete, you know, was unheard of at the time. And so, um, you know, they wrote a little story in the paper and how I, you know, I had this run. I mean, I, I, I do remember that, you know, the day after that article came out, I lost my first match, but, um, but it was really fun. And, and then, you know, and then I remember uh, a friend of mine, Mike, who um, was coaching at Quinnipiac University, you know, had saw my brother and I play at the local university and saw us practicing a lot and, and so said, you guys should become certified teaching pros. And so in 1992, you know, he sponsored us or, you know, suggested, you know, that we do it. You had to have someone back then um, really suggest you or refer you for it. And so mm-hmm. um, I became a USPTA certified pro in 92 and um, I really loved it. And then, then um, a good friend of ours and tennis teaching mentor, Scott also encouraged us to teach. He gave me my first teaching job and uh, he encouraged us to, to play USTA doubles. And at the time, you know, we'd played some local tournaments, but uh, we had then gotten a ranking of number 10, I think, in New England. And he said, I think you guys could, could be ranked in New England, maybe even number one. And um, and so he really gave us that encouragement. And then, um, unfortunately, um, he passed away at age 42 of ALS, um, Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, so that, that was, um, you know, certainly really tough. And... Um, so one day my brother was at a car wash and they had magazines and a Guinness book of world records out on the table. And we still were on, we were unsettled um, from losing Scott um, because he was such a wonderful person and, and, and a very passionate teaching professional. And, you know, when someone really puts their belief in you and you feel like, that helps you achieve something and then they're not there anymore. It doesn't feel right. And, um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, we were certainly unsettled and and my brother called me and and said, um, I'm looking through a Guinness book of world's records. And I came up with a great idea to honor Scott's legacy. And at the same exact time, Lisa, we said, set a world record for tennis. And um, it was, it was really an epiphany. Um, and that was, he passed away in 2005. So that was in 2006. And so the way it works is you pay a application fee, you know, back at that time, I think it was $250. Um, you have to have references. You have to show that you don't have a criminal past and you're a citizen in good standing. Um, you know, really just to go out and try to 
break a world record, which was interesting. I didn't know it, it entailed that much. You mm-hmm. have to declare a specific day. So it has to be a specific day. So it, the whole process, I would say, takes about a year. So so you you are a year out from when you declare you want to set this record or try to go for a record. And so we we had chosen August of 2007. So it was really comical because I remember us going to our Hamden, you know, courts where we live, our town courts. And um, we said, let's experiment with different types of, of rallies because Guinness didn't track, you know, what type of rally, as long as the rally was continuous with one ball, no stopping, no breaks or anything. Um, as long as the ball was in, then, you know, it counted. So we did, you know, both of us at the baseline, both of us slightly inside the baseline, both of us mini tennis, one at the net, one back, you know, tried a different, a bunch of different combinations. But I remember that, um, there was an elderly couple, uh, that had, you know, come and you know how the etiquette is on a public court. If you want to get to the court next to you, you wait until the point's over. And I remember we were rallying for quite some time practicing for this record and not realizing that there was people waiting for, you know, about that. <laughs> about they wanted a, to get to the next court. They couldn't get through. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think it was, I think they waited about an hour, but, uh, but in any event, um, <laughs> so, no, it was like, oh, then at one point we, we caught them in the corner of our eye and said, um, uh, I said, oh, sorry, we're, we're, pra- we'll be here a while. <laughs> um, you could pass, but, um, but I remember that, you know, that first day that we practiced for the world record, you know, we must've had about five misses, um, within an hour and trying different methods and, and we realized, oh boy, this is going to be much more daunting than we, we ever thought imaginable. But we had already set a date. We had already cleared it by Guinness uh, World Records. We were making it a charity event to raise money for ALS Association and also Save the Children. And and um, we had two other charities as well. And, and so... Um, you know, we said, we can't back out now. Everything is set. So let's just do the best we can, see what we can do. And I remember the date came around in 2007 and, you know, you know, um, I remember Tim Mayotte was there and we, 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 um, the schedule of the day looked like this. My brother and I volunteered for six hours straight teaching, uh, adult tennis clinics and junior clinics. And then, then we played a, a, a doubles pro-am exhibition match, and then at 4.30 at night, said, okay, now let's start the rally for the world record, which ended up not being the greatest um, time management uh, for that. Uh, what was started, the record prior to your attempt? The record was, um, uh, let's see, it was a little bit over 16,000 rallies um, when we first filled out the application, but then... Um, in that process, within that year and, and planning for it, the record was broken. So it was 24,696 consecutive shots. Um, oh my gosh. It took the, those gentlemen, I think about nine hours or so. Um, you could do volley to volley or, you know, since Guinness is not a tennis company, they, they really don't care how you do it. And even though you have to document the time, um, they technically go by number of strokes. It really should be the greatest rally, but uh, because length is really a time, but even though you track the time, it doesn't go by time. And so uh, 
so we started at 4.30. We rallied for about two hours. My brother hits into the bottom of the net, and he said that that was the first time he actually thought about his stroke. And once he thought about his forehand, he, he hit into the net. So I remember, you know, us then using the restroom real quick and coming back to try again. And I, and I said to, to my brother, Ed, you know, the bottom of the net, you know. And <laughs> so we go back, and, uh, you know, we, you have you have sponsors there. You have counters, volunteer counters. Because according to the rules, you have to have one counter for each person hitting a shot. And so, you know, here we go again. We started again about 630. And so our, our motivation was let's let's try to make the 7 o'clock news to get publicity for the charities. And then let's try to make the 11 o'clock news, which we did. And then, then the 5 a.m. news, which we did. Um, and at 5.09 a.m., I was basically falling asleep on my feet. And I, I hit the ball on the top of the net kind of with an extended blink. And so at that point we had the U S record, we rallied for over 10 hours. Um, so even though we, you know, we had a longer time, it goes by number of strokes and it was 19,490. We were shy by just about 5,000, but immediately we, we said, you know, failure is simply a step towards success. You know, let's declare what date next year we're going to do it. We, we declared it right away. Um, August 9th of, of 2008, and so we got some advice from friends that were there and also practicing. We practiced a little bit more um, going into that next year. Um, but we came up with the fact that we're going to start the rally a heck of a lot earlier, you know, in 2008 yeah. than we did in 2007. And we're going to delegate the the volunteer tennis clinics to raise money for charity to other people, friends of ours, local teaching pros. And so that's what we did. We showed up to uh, the club at, at 9 a.m. And we didn't realize, but, we, you know, the fire marshal was there. We had to sign off on some documents. Uh, the news was there. We had a, you know, do, we did a, we were happy to do an interview. Um, and none of that made me nervous because I knew the more exposure for the charities, the more money we can raise, the better. And that's the whole point. And when you take yourself out of it and you take your ego out of it, um, then then self-preservation kind of goes by the wayside because you're doing something for the greater good and for someone beyond yourself. And I really believe that. And so then um, once the news crews were, were you know, were done with, with everything, uh, we started at 9.30 a.m. And, uh, you know, it was up until about 12,000 strokes that uh, I got hungry. And we, 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 <laughs> I didn't even think we, about that. Like, of course, you've got to refuel out there. Yes, yes. And uh, so, you know, I got hungry and we had uh, basically small power bars that were unwrapped on the top of small mini Gatorades. Um, this year, instead of, you know, um, running to the side and, and drinking the Gatorades and lobbing eight, ten, eight to ten times to finish the Gatorade, we had Camelbacks. In 2008, um, and we were rallying just inside the baseline because technically, if you're beyond the baseline, the ball lands out. The, the you know the rally attempt is done, and so we said, let's be just inside. So you know, God forbid, one of us hits it a little bit long, you can at least save it by volleying it. Right. Luckily, we never had to do that, but we were going forehand to forehand the whole time. And we were doing full strokes. Uh, I wasn't hitting 100% power, but my my grip and my stroke was my forehand because I said if I'm going to hit 
you know, half a day of forehands. I want my forehand to get better, not worse. So, um, you know, so basically at 12,000 strokes, I got, I got hungry and, you know, I, I ran off to the side and picked up a power bar and was eating it. And it took us about 10 lobs for me to finish eating it. And just as I was finishing eating it, I then tried to level out our, the arc of our shot. And unfortunately I hit it a little bit too low and it arced and landed right smack dab on the top of the net cord and then bounced over. That just gave my brother enough time to scramble up and with a continental grip kind of lob it back. And that was called the power bar panic. So wow. we we survived the power bar panic. We, we continued um, until uh, my brother was done with his fluids, his camelback, and the Velcro attachment around his waist ended up coming undone a little bit and as he was hitting slowly slid down to his knees and he kind of yells out I, I can't move the the camelback is tied to my um legs and so one of the volunteers said bite the straw and pull down on it it'll come off and so sure enough he bit the straw he pulled down on the camelback and then it went down to his ankles and then he kicked it to the side and so <laughs> There, there we survived the um, camelback crisis. That was dubbed the camelback crisis. And so, I love it. Um, yeah, so so we survived the the uh, power bar panic and the camel camelback crisis, and um, and so you know we were well on our way. And um, you know I, I know you know for tennis players out there, you know especially children. Um, the mind and your mindset and your self-belief and your grit or what I like to call tenacity, you know, that's what's the most important. You know, the skills that you're born with become really irrelevant. It, the desire for you to accomplish something is so important and to have a purpose that is really mean, meaningful to you. And, and I certainly had a lot of purpose. Um, behind that record. And so going into it, we both removed the word miss from our vocabulary. So through just meditation and that sort of thing, if you asked me the day of the record, if I knew what the word miss was, I, I could tell you I really didn't know what it meant. So we removed the word miss from our mental vocabulary. And then you know, I'm a big fan of the inner game. I've read the book so many times, Tim Galway's work. And, and so it was, it really came down to, to, to the mental game and, and really pushing beyond your barriers. And so we knew we had failed at 19,490. So at about 15,000 strokes, you know, for me, that was crunch time. So every time the ball came over to me, I, I said to myself, under the ball, because if you hit under the ball, it's going to go up. But if you don't hit it far enough, it could go up and then down and into the net. So I said, mm -hmm. under the ball, over the net, and come on. And the come on was just for a little extra motivation. And because I knew if I got under the ball and over the net, it was going to go in. And so I focused on that each time. So rather than rallying, you know, over 25,000 times, the record ended up being 25,944. Uh, you know, rather than thinking of that collectively as a sum total is very daunting or being out there for 
14 hours and 31 minutes, which ended up being the official time, that seems very daunting. But if you say to yourself to hit one shot under the ball, over the net, you can do that once, can't you? Yeah. And I remember in James Blake's book, Breaking Back, he, he said the same type of thing. If I can win one point, I can win the next. Or if I can win one game, I can win another game, you know. And it's that sort of thing. And so that that simplistic mindset of, you know, one shot at a time. And, and, and not only that, but I had to hit the shot well enough to clear the net, but deep enough so that it was a shot that was makeable for my brother. Mm-hmm. And in tennis, you're actually trying to make it uncomfortable for your opponent, not comfortable. So I kind of had to do the opposite, but it certainly was a mental challenge. And then, you know, what we said to our volunteers was post K's on pieces of paper and they would write one K, two K, three K like, like uh, pitchers in baseball. Yeah. A thousand. Yeah. Okay. And then once we were at 25 K, we would know we had the record in hand because the previous record was 24,696 set by two Germans, uh, originally by two Germans, actually then by two people from Europe. So in any event, once they put the 25K up there, I was thrilled. I was jumping around like Nadal. And my brother, Etere, was the opposite. He was severely cramping. He had salt on his arms. You know, he was really, really dehydrated. And so it was... And like let's remember, and this, was a, this was in August, so you're dealing with summer heat and humidity. Yeah, and, and, and to boot, this was an indoor club. We personally, purposely did it indoors because once you declare the date, you can't move it. So, so if it rained, oh. you were out of luck. So, but there was a skylight, which actually exacerbated the heat. And right. unfortunately, the air condition broke the night before. So we had them bring in these huge fans in the middle of the rally uh, because I was sweating, Lisa, profusely after just two hours. I've never sweat so much in my life, and it was only two hours in. Um, so my brother sweat out all his fluids. For me, the, <laughs> it was a blessing because I I wasn't using the camelback correctly. I don't know if you've ever used camelbacks in bike yeah. rides or tennis or anything, but you have to bite the straw, and then right. you could you know, um, drink the liquids, but I didn't realize that So here I am, you know, kind of trying to drink and I'm just getting enough Gatorade or Powerade to wet my palate, but that's it. So I think I, I fooled my brain that I was actually hydrated, but I wasn't because there was only, I think three fluid ounces that could fit in the camelback. And I, and when I was done, I had half my fluids left, whereas my brother was done after only a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so then looking at that, you know, we had music playing and we had about 20 volunteer counters, you know, two per hour, every hour, basically some people that stayed longer that were really proficient at it and didn't cramp in their fingertips. And he was, my brother was mainly the communicator. He was using a lot of effort and energy to say, okay, higher, more than right. You know, that, okay, come on, let's go. And I got really quiet during the rally. I was more meditating. And so that's why when we set the record and we kept going, my brother had a, a shutdown, you know, and he started to cramp. And I had the opposite effect. I was bouncing around. 
and the, the, there were there was a, a large audience there. There was 250 people throughout the day, and then probably about 30 that stayed until till past midnight when we finished. And it was about 11:25 p.m. and they kept encouraging us, encouraging us. And the adjudicator had walked in from Guinness a few hours earlier. And, you know, the whole thing was being recorded because that's the Guinness World Record rules. You have to record the whole rally. But then we, we said, okay, at, at, at midnight, we're going to stop. And I remember another funny story was that about 11, 11, um, 57, I think it was, uh, our, our clock said, said midnight says so okay we're going to stop down the judicator says no according to the world clock it's 11 57 so we're like okay if we can rally for 14 and a half hours we can rally for two more minutes and so we rallied until um two or three more minutes until 1201 and then i let the ball pass on purpose on my right um so that way we would never have missed and also since we're identical twins and i started with a serve and he returned we knew that if i was going to be the one to let the ball pass, we'd have identical strokes because we're identical twins. And, and that, that was history. And that was it. in 2008. And, um, we honored, you know, Scott's legacy and we raised money for, for charity. And it, you know, I felt like a million bucks. I felt like, um, you know, here I am, I, I, I have life balance and peace and all at the same time. And, and I'm excited and, um, the, the, the balls and, and the counters got, you know, this, uh, I guess, um, into the uh, international tennis hall of fame in Newport, Rhode Island, uh, I guess, inducted or accepted into the, so tennis fans that go there, you know, parents bring their kids. It's really inspiring. And we've spoken, um, about five, six times at, uh, around, around July 4th weekend at parents, a family weekend. And we, give a tour of the museum, tell the story about the record, show a 10 minute movie, give a one hour inspirational presentation, and then do some tennis clinics for the kids. It's really, really fun. And it's a great way to give back to the game that's done so much for both of us. Um, and for me, you know, I met my wife, uh, Pam, through playing tennis at Yale and, uh, you know, in coaching a team. And I went, met my attorney and best friend, and I get a chance to keep in touch with my brother, so really, and, and I now make a living directing um, Western Racquet Club. It's an environmental tennis center in Western Connecticut. And I remember before setting the record in 2008, when we had the attempt in 2007, I said, I want to write a book. I want to inspire, you know, people, especially children, to have dreams and go for their goals. Because I never would thought that, you know, starting tennis so late at age 15, um, and not having official lessons and not having, you know, uh, anyone, a private coach to, to help me except just playing with my brother and the love of the game. I never thought that I could accomplish those kind of things. And so I want to inspire children to do the same. And so he said, well, well, I said, I want to write a book. And he's like, well, why don't we set the world record first and then you can write your book. And so, so, okay. You know, 2008 rolled around. We set the record. Lisa, but then it didn't end there. Um, we every year in August ra raised money for charity, um, and we ran tennis events. And we contacted a company in Vegas, and they're the company that gives a million dollars if you hit a hole in one for golf. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. they've never done a tennis promotion, so I called them up and said, "Hey, 
we're the Guinness World Record holders for the longest tennis rally. We rallied 25,944 shots, 14 hours and 31 minutes. We want to raise money for charity. And would you, you know, basically cover us, you know, it's basically you're buying an insurance policy and put up a million dollars for anyone that can break our record. And so after some thought and, and making it really difficult in the rules, uh, we were able to secure a million dollars for anyone that could break our record the next year on a declared day. And we had eight to 10 teams that tried out one particular team that made it to the finals and they rallied. Unfortunately, they, they rallied for uh, an hour and then there was a miss and you were only allowed one attempt. Uh, and I remember along the way, my wife and some other people said, why on earth would you spend money to buy you know, a policy to give someone a million dollars and send them to break your own world record? And I said, it's not about the record. It's about what the record symbolizes. And, you know, I, so I said, yeah, we're going to be the, the biggest fans of that, of, of that next group that's going to try to break the record because that's going to bring publicity and money for charity. And, um, and so then, you know, a few years later, uh, we found out that our record had been broken. We had held it for five years. And then two Germans, a father and son team, uh, kind of re-engineered the process and and stood a few inches apart from the net and did a volley to volley rally and they they beat the record by a large margin but in half the time and guinness again tracks it on number of strokes and so we said okay it's time for us to try to do it again and uh we we raised money for for save the children this time was the cause my brother still works there full time he's been there for i think almost 15 years and so on Roger Federer's birthday, August 8th of 2015, we set out to, you know, reset the world record for the longest tennis rally. And I would start with a serve. He hit a return. We both came to net and then we did volley volley because we said, okay, let's see if we can do that for a, a longer period of time. And we had trained for that, you know, the, the year prior and especially heavily every week, uh, three months going into it. And unfortunately, about two weeks prior to the uh, record attempt, uh, my brother had an injury to his right wrist tendon, a tendon in his right wrist. He had a little bit of a tear in there um, because we had were training so much. And, you know, it puts a lot of strain on your wrist when you're just doing volley to volley. Yeah. And so, you know, right away I said you know, to my brother, I was like, yeah, you know, it's too bad. We did all this, you know, we don't have to do it next year. And he said, no, we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to throw on the towel. I'm going to figure out a way. And he went to uh, Keith, our friend who owns this pro league organization as a PT for athletes. And he kind of devised this kind of wrist brace that he could wear. And then he learned how to volley with two hands that would take a lot of the pressure off the tendon. And so and there we were again, you know, train, training again, and, and also kudos out to Larry Lauer. He, he does mental skills for uh, the USTA in, in uh, Orlando, Florida, and he was kind of our mental coach a little bit. We had asked him, hey, can you help coach us through this record? Here's what we're trying to do. And he, and he was, you know, very happy to help. And, and I remember emailing him frantically a week or so before the attempt, you know, saying, do you believe in mind over matter? Because my brother has an injury. and We have to get by that. And, and he said, more or less, yes, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and so I'm like, good enough, you know, but basically, um, 
you know, it was one of those things where, you know, it, it, w- it would be a advice I wouldn't necessarily give other parents for their children, but you, you know how, how far you can push your own limits. And my brother and I can push them pretty far, we've kind of figured out. And so what we did in preparing, you know, for mental skills for the record was, you know, what we did was we, we said, let's make the practice much more difficult than the actual day. So we fasted for 24 hours and then attempted a practice on Friday night at 7 p.m. once we closed the club and we would rally in the wee hours of the night. And wow. then we would um, not. I think y'all are a little insane. I'm just yeah, putting that you, out there. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to be. Yeah, I think you, you do have to be. Um, you kind of got to be out there a little. You got to be really. I, I, I like this. I like to be diplomatic and say very committed. But um, I, okay, I like uh, that. You know, we were very committed. We definitely had a purpose and a cause. Uh, I think if you have a purpose in the causes beyond yourself, then you can go beyond your own limits. And, and so we wouldn't sleep for a day and then do it without sleep, without drinking. I remember going through two days without uh, drinking any water or any fluids uh, and then do the attempt. But the breakthrough uh, after reading Josh Waveskin's book, Art of Learning, and, you know, really for reflecting on it, the epiphany I had going into this second world record attempt or really, you know, third, um, was, Hey, let's break our record in practice because that's going to give us a lot of confidence the day of the record. And so sure enough, about a week before August 8th, we broke our record in practice. I think it was about 2 AM. We broke our record. And so we said, that's going to be awesome. Um, we have a hidden secret that we now have set a world record in practice. And, and that was just what we needed. So we rallied for, we, you know, I served, he returned, we come the day of the event and, um, we started around nine o'clock and then after five hours and 28 minutes of volleying 30,576 volleys, unfortunately my brother missed in the net. We were devastated because the record was 50,000. And they go by number of strokes, not time. But what Guinness informed us of was that since we never let the ball bounce, we didn't rest, we didn't do mini tennis like the previous record holders. They would come up to the net volley, go back when they're tired, in and out. We went flat out five hours and 28 minutes without letting the ball bounce. So that was a new world record. And therefore, our second world record, the longest tennis volley rally. And that one still stands today. Um, and so we raised over $114,000 for save the children. So we were thrilled about that. And that goes to show, especially for children out there that, you know, it's okay to set your goals and your dreams high, because if you don't reach your goals or dreams, you know, you don't, you don't reach the moon, you'll, you'll reach the stars and, and, and reaching the stars isn't, isn't that bad. Right. And that's, and also you, you inspire others in the process of your journey. And I do believe that you really have to thoroughly enjoy the process rather than, you know, hold your, your enjoyment hostage to the result. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so that was our second world record. And, and all of this was makings of the book tenacity, the tenacious mindset on and off the court. And, you know, you know, I, I will say that those records 
you know, were huge. But for me, what really uh, did it for me is uh, working with this uh, young woman, Annie. And uh, she was in high school and high school freshman trying out for a very challenging team. And she was very anxious about tryouts. And I had been coaching her, giving her lessons throughout the year. And, and then, you know, tragedy struck in December, uh, the club that she was, she was training in, um, it collapsed due to the snow on the, on the, the rooftops. And so she was, she had to go to another club for clinics, but she could stay with me for private lessons. And I remember she was really upset and she went to another club and the coach, this was a couple months before tryouts had said, you don't have enough topspin on your forehand to make the high school team. And she was devastated. And she told her mother and her mother, you know, kind of informed me or texted me before the lesson. Hey, if you can work on her forehand, that would be great. And just do your thing as far as confidence, because she needs, she needs a lot of confidence right now. So I remember she walks on the court and I, and I greet her with as much genuine joy as I can. And I'm like, Annie, you know, what would you like to work on? And I already knew the answer. And she said, uh, my forehand, particularly topspin on my forehand. And right away I said, well, Annie, there's nothing wrong with your forehand. You have plenty of topspin. And she's like, well, what do you mean? So I said, oh, let me show you. And so I remembered, you know, dropping the ball and, and hitting it as, almost as hard as I could. Flat ball, um, very little topspin, and it goes in. And I said to her, did that ball have enough topspin? And she said, well, well, yeah, because it was in. I said, exactly, and so do yours. So we did the lesson. It went really well, and then I didn't have a lesson right after, so I brought her into the conference room. I said, all right, Annie, I'm going to give you two homework assignments before our lesson next week. The first one is you need to write 100 times, I will make the high school tennis team, and you want to reread that until you believe it. And bring that to me next week. And the second thing, and she's like, I, like, can you do that? And she's like, sure. Like, the second thing is I need you to write a press release. And she's like, well, what's that? And I was like, okay, well, it's basically a story, a news story. And I want you to write a news story Monday after tryouts that the coach is saying how well you did and you made your high school team. She's like, okay. So a week goes by, we do our private lesson, we go into the conference room. Sure enough, she has very neatly written out a hundred times, I will make the tennis team. And I said to her, and she had the press release. It was a two-sentence press release, but it was still well done. She accomplished, she's a very good student. She accomplished the, the assignment. And I said, Annie, so do you believe you're going to make the high school tennis team? And she said, yeah. I was like, okay, you're not, you're not selling me on that. <laughs> You need to reread that this upcoming week, and next week you need to talk to me again. She's like, okay. So we have a lesson the next week, our third lesson. She, I, I could see that by the look in her eye that at this point she she believes she can make the team. And I realized all along, Lisa, that it was my mission not to get her to make the high school tennis, tennis team. It was my goal to get her to believe that she mm. could make the team. And, you know, sure enough, I remember, um, you know, she called me and for me, it really, 
is is emotional for me in a good way because you remember I was in at home and she calls me on my cell and and I and I, and I go running to the, I pick up my phone I go running to the bathroom because it wasn't great cell service and I need to get to a quiet place and my wife's like who's calling you I'm like I don't know and I go into the bathroom it was Annie and she was crying and you know she said I've made the team and I said oh I'm so so proud of you and and it was for me that moment realizing that I had such a positive impact on, on a child, uh, you know, a, a young woman, um, I said, this is far beyond tennis. And that was really the reason why I said, I have to, you know, share what I know and what I learned about loss and love and, and setting two world records and, and how, I can help others, you know, really accomplish their dreams and goals. And I remember a few weeks later, she emailed me a a paper um, that she had written. And it was uh, for her English class. And it was the person in her lifetime that was most influential in her tennis career. And that was me. And it was just such a touching moment for me. Um, and it just, it put it all together, you know, because I think uh, the moment that you find your purpose is just a really special moment. And so, you know, with this book, Tenacity, that just came out, you know, it's it's more like, um, you know, helping people find their purpose and, and the four G's, which I live by, which is, you know, get a dream, goals set, goals get, and give back. And I try to I try to do that every day. I try to be inspired and inspire someone every day, you know, especially children because they're so impressionable and you can do so much with a child. Although it's you know the same for adults too. I mean, adults still have dreams and sometimes they're still trying to find their purpose. I feel like I'm always trying to refine mine. And um, you know, through you know a lot of hard work and, and loss, I, I feel like I never would want someone to go through some of the losses I had, but but how I turned a negative into a positive and uh, were able to do some, some good things for other people, I feel was a great thing. And then Annie goes on, of course, to, you know, uh, be accepted to Brown university study, you know, studied biomechanical engineering and uh, played a little bit of tennis there and graduated and now has a very good job in our industry. And, you know, she's an amazing young woman and I still keep in touch with her. And, um, you know, it's amazing how sometimes when you're trying to help someone, they're also helping you. I love that. I I mean, your story is, you know, it's heartwarming and it's inspiring. And I I just want to say thank you for sharing it with Parenting Aces. We We need these stories in our world and you know, the link between tennis and giving back and inspiring others is, is just phenomenal. So thank you so much, Angelo. Yeah. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I just, I I can't wait to read the book. I I'm waiting to get my copy and I (laughs) am just thrilled to be able to share it with parenting aces and, 
If y'all decide to go after another Guinness World Record, please let me know because I want to be there in live and in person to watch. <laughs> I, I think that's so cool. <laughs> You're going to have to drink your coffee to stay awake. <laughs> I'll make it happen. I'm not worried about that part. I I, I know that... Um, <laughs> After every record, we say we're we're never going to do that again, you know. And then you never know when the motivation uh, strikes. And so I'd say, uh, you know, there's no always and no nevers. Uh, yeah. Although if I could help, you know, children accomplish their world records, their dreams, on and off the court, you know, for me, I'm a better person for it. And and I'm hoping that the book, you know, inspires people to really have the courage and the grit and the tenacity to, to have big dreams and to have goals. And I firmly believe that if you put your heart and mind into something, you can accomplish anything. Absolutely. Well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Angela Rossetti, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.